I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. All right, everybody, this is Bill Bupert, and welcome to episode 22, review and discussion of a book called Day of the Rangers, The Battle of Mogadishu, 25 Years On, by Lee Neville and Matt Eversman. Matt Eversman will probably prompt a memory among my audience because they know of his exploits as described in both the book Black Hawk Down, A Story of Modern War by Mark Bowden, published in 1999, and Black Hawk Down, the movie brilliantly directed by Ridley Scott in 2001, in which Matt Eversman plays a large role in those uh, in that book and film. Now, in this case... Lee Neville's book was published in 2018. And what I really enjoyed about revisiting this is not only is it fascinating to examine these things immediately afterwards, let's say news reports, it's 1993. So in 1993, I was reading about what had happened in Mogadishu. I had some uh, colleagues and comrades who had actually participated in it where I could get firsthand reports in uh, 1994, after they had redeployed from Somalia, on exactly what happened in what's referred to as the Battle of the Black Sea, the Battle of Mogadishu, Operation Gothic Serpent. And of course, those events took place on 3 and 4 October 1993. What is really fascinating about this particular military episode in what is contemporary military history for U.S. And, and allied coalition armed forces, is it was the meeting engagement, the ambuscade, the raid, the snatch operation, all these things combined in a very hostile region of the planet where we really had, as the U.S. and the West, no business whatsoever interfering, but nonetheless that happened, and as a result we suffered the casualties and uh, infamous results as a uh, consequence of engaging in this. So Lee Neville and Eversman did a great job in this book describing not only the preamble to those two October days that are drilled into U.S. military history now in both a morbid and fine fashion, but it also describes what happened beforehand, what happened on that day. And he provides these really interesting appendices in the back where he describes the tactics, techniques, and procedures, aviation lessons, lessons learned, weapons employed during that time. And of course, remember, 1993 is approximately eight years after the formation of U.S. Special Operations Command. And, of course, the U.S. Special Operations Command was a result of the 1979 doomed Iranian hostage rescue operation called Eagle Claw that caused so many problems and, and killed so many folks that 
It took years for them finally to say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to create a unified combat combatant command called Special Operations Command, now in Tampa, Florida, still exists, very large, I think closing on 80,000 folks, of which about 10% are tooth and the remainder are tail, everything from intelligence to logistics to aviation support and all the rest. And all of that was a result of the enacting of the Goldwater-Nichols Act of October 4th, 1986, in which as a result of so many inter-service rivalry and joint problems that had emerged, I would say going back to the Korean War, then of course instantiated in the Vietnam War, all the Banana Republic Wars that took place in places as far away as the Dominican Republic during that time, and then of course the failure of the Iranian hostage rescue mission in 1980 that I mentioned, I said 79, but that was uh, November of 79 when the hostages were taken, but the rescue mission actually took place in 1980. And of course we had the invasion of Grenada in 1983 in the storied halls of books and memoirs of that conflict. And of course the tremendous uh, Clint Eastwood movie from 1986, Heartbreak Ridge, both funny and appalling in how it demonstrated in a cinematic way how the inimitable character of Gunny Highway had uh, the problems that he experienced and the rest of the forces experienced in Grenade at the time as a result of a lack of communication, whether it was logistics or electronic communication, and all the rest that made Grenada such a mess. So we have the Goldwater-Nichols Act, and it creates... SOCOM, I have my own reservations and heartache with Goldwater Nichols and what it has done. Again, I'm always saying this, but future episode, we'll discuss Goldwater Nichols and the absolutely um, silly consequences, second and third order effects that it has had on the utility and the continued defeat of U.S. armed forces, especially with this notion of jointness and joint. Those of my military audience knows what that means. Those who are civilians and don't understand, joint is simply an umbrella rubric term that says that the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, and whatever other forces are attached to them will cooperate with a unified command framework at the joint level, what's referred to as the purple level in military argo. But as I said, we'll discuss the specific inanities and imbecility of the Goldwater-Nichols Act and the formation of SOCOM and how some of that has not been as positive as most make it out to be. So again, here we are. This book discusses the Battle of the Black Sea. I love the, uh, the name Operation Gothic Serpent. Some of the background. So in December 1992, remember, we're talking about October 3rd and 4th for the actual Black Hawk Down event. President George H.W. Bush ordered the military to join the U.N. in a joint organization known as Operation Restore Hope in Somalia, and they had the primary mission of restoring order in Somalia. Now, the country had collapsed yet again into civil war in 1991, and the following year, severe famine induced by the fighting and other things broke out. And, of course, over the next several months, the situation deteriorated. I want to stop here for a very brief interregnum, and that would be this. Yes, there was a famine. Yes, they had suffered famines before. 
Yes, the private and semi-private agricultural interest and combines within the country of Somalia and the surrounding countries had found ways around that. But what was really bad about this with the UN intervention is that as a result of the UN intervention, free food started flowing into Somalia. So all those foodstuffs that were supplied by the sympathetic Western interests, the UN, all the NGOs, non-governmental organizations and such, once they came in, once they started distributing free food, the indigenous residents of Somalia had a choice. Should we pay for food, as we always have, for hundreds if not thousands of years, or should we take the free food? Well, they would take the free food as human incentives work. As a result of that, there was an absolutely complete collapse of the private and quasi-government agricultural combines and interest within Somalia proper. And once one does that and one has free food available, that collapses very hard to restart. So, of course, as usual, the UN intervenes and make thing, makes things much worse than they were originally. So, during the early months of 1993, all these parties involved in the Civil War agreed to a disarmament conference, which was held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Now, enactment of the agreed-upon terms, however, was not so easily achieved. And there was a powerful faction run by one General Mohammed Farah Idid, called the Somali National Alliance, which we will refer to as the SNA in this podcast. And it was formed in late 1992, and it had become particularly anti-UN. Uh, major disagreements between the UN and the SNA began soon after the establishment of UNISOM II in March 1993, centering on the perceived nature of the operation's political mandate and the very nature of the UN coming around and starting to push folks about who actually live there. So by May 1993, relations between the SNA and UNISOM just deteriorated. And then, of course, this led to conflict. Now, on 5 June 1993, one of the deadliest attacks on UN forces in Somalia occurred when 24 Pakistani soldiers were ambushed and killed. Now, not only were they ambushed and killed, but they were mutilated, among which was skinning and torture. Not necessarily in that order but maybe so. And any hope of a peaceful resolution of the conflict quickly vanished. The next day, the UN Security Council issued Resolution 837. I urge my listeners, if you're having trouble sleeping, taking a look at that. But what it really called for was the arrest and trial of those who carried out that ambush of the 24 Pakistani UN-assigned soldiers. U.S. warplanes and UN troops began an attack on Idid's stronghold. Now, the use of air power, again, we haven't examined this through any stretch of this podcast. There's always been a fascination in the United States Air Force and European Air Forces on how can we use air power to prosecute a irregular conflict, a conflict against guerrillas. Now, inevitably, what happens with the use of air power, especially the air power that we're characterizing for 1992 and 1993, despite the vaunted efforts and terrific technology at the time for U.S. and coalition aircraft, would that possibly result in the maiming killing of women and children? You will find that that will be a motif that I will always emphasize in this podcast. And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. 
So a significant number of Somali civilians also resented international forces following incidents, such as the June 1993 UN mass shooting of protesters and the 12 July 1993 Bloody Monday raid. For those of you interested, take a look at those events and you will find that they are pretty blood-curdling and stomach-wrenching. And, of course, this led to significant numbers of civilians, including women and children. I emphasize again, including women and children, to take up arms and actively resist U.S. and UNISOM II forces during fighting in Mogadishu, Somalia. Now, this probably, for those of you who have listened to the entirety of this podcast series, or you've dabbled in irregular warfare, or even conventional warfare, will find that... Not only the savaging, the dislocation, the maiming and killing of women and children leads to a stiffening and stealing of the spine of all resistance, but it also leads to, and of course this is from the University of the Intuitively Obvious, the notion that these kind of wars make things personal. And when it comes to Islamic nation states in which the personal and the spiritual can tend to combine into a very forceful function, which is remedying dishonor visited upon their families through external coalition, or in this case, Western and U.S. forces, imposing their will at the point of a gun against them and the inevitable savaging of families, men, women, and children. And of course, we know what this leads to because we've seen it throughout history. So, following the 12 July 1993 raid carried out by the U.S. Quick Reaction Force for UNISOM II, the conflict began sharply escalating and SNA forces began deliberately targeting American forces in Somalia for the first... By the way, what I've just been describing, of course, I did go back to Bowden's book and find that. And I also found a really interesting article by a fellow by the name of Sebastian Kampf, 2018. title was Saving Soldiers or Civilians, Casualty Aversion versus Civilian Protection in Asymmetric Asymmetric Conflicts. Highly recommended. Uh, That's where I got some of the information that I've just related to you. So according to U.S. Special Envoy to Somalia, Robert B. Oakley, Quote, before July 12th, the U.S. would have been attacked only because of association with the U.N., but the U.S. was never singled out until after July 12th because of the incidents that I just described. For the remainder of July, firefights between the SNA and UNISOM began occurring almost daily. The SNA would put a bounty out for any American soldier or U.N. personnel killed, leading to a doubling of attacks against UNISOM II forces. Now, of course... For listeners of my podcast and those who are active readers of military history, both conventional and irregular warfare, will find a consistent uh, riff and movement throughout what I've just described as what turns into the inevitable second and third order effects of indiscriminately targeting large war party, parties, war bands, uh, the SNA soldiers and such. And, of course, the women and children being maimed and killed as a result. Because we all know from watching the movie or having read Bowden's great book or even reading this book that the gauntlet 
on October 3rd and 4th run by Task Force Ranger, which was the element assigned to seize Ideed and his henchmen in a snatch raid, which precipitated and led to all of the things that most of us are familiar with in popular culture, occurred in Operation Gothic Serpent. What happened in all of this, the train was created because of the abuses that had been visited upon the population. And there was this notion during descriptions contemporary to the time, and of course, afterwards, historically, that you would have women and children lining the streets where men or the women and children were not only employing RPGs, not only employing Kalashnikovs, not only tossing grenades, not only doing all of these things, but sort of throwing a monkey wrench into the rules of engagement that have conventionally been followed by most Western forces, U.S. in particular in the 20th century after World War II, where women and children were not viewed as combatants and, of course, weren't targeted and would cause hesitation while getting off of the X. So let's go over some numbers here real quick. During Operation Gothic's Gothic Serpent, the units involved were Bravo Company 3rd Battalion, 75th Ranger, Charlie Squadron 1st, SFODD, known as Delta, now pretty much known as either CAG or the unit, 1st Battalion, 160th SOAR, Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which would be the AH-6s and the MH-60s. MH tends to be the preamble identifier for aircraft, whether fixed wing or rotary wing, that are not only special operations specific in their mission profiles, but tend to have refueling probes at the front. DevGru, SEALs were there. 24th STS, which is the Tier 1 Air Force organization for their special tactics squadron. And of course, the units opposed were the SNA militia and others. The strength, 441 troops total. Uh, they had eight MH60 Blackhawks, four AH6s, four MH6 Little Birds, three OH-58 Kiowas reconnaissance helicopters, one P-3 Orion, a fixed-wing aircraft that would rotate above and be able to give them moving target indicators and a read on what was going on on the ground transmitted on their squadron and squad on their squadron squad and all of their tactical nets a number of humvees both up armored and not um, up armored and 5 ton trucks now what i really appreciated about the lee neville book is that he corrected some fables and misinformation that bowden I think because he was contemporary to the time, and of course Ridley Scott took artistic license in Black Hawk Down with his composites of characters and such. There was this notion that the strength of the militiamen was in the thousands. That is true. There was the notion that multiple technicals were involved if one watched the film. Talking to all the folks on the ground who experienced this for that 48 hours minus, no technicals were present because even the, the SNA and the Somali militiamen knew that with the employment of technical, technicals, the performance of the AH-6 and the MH-6 Little Birds was such that those technicals wouldn't last very long because of U.S. strength in both targeting and using these Little Birds to service targets, especially like technicals. So before we continue on, I know this sort of uh, 
tells us, well, don't tell me what happened in the end, but I've got to for various reasons. Three to four October casualties and losses. 18 killed. 18 Americans killed, both Rangers and Delta. 85 to 97 plus wounded. I don't know why I can't get a good figure on that. I suspect that somebody can. Maybe Lee Neville can finally come up with that. One captured, and then on 6 October in some follow-on raids. Remember, the, the Gothic Serpent raid actually takes place 3 to 4 October. 6 October, there's one killed, 13 wounded. Now, estimated combatant and civilian casualties for SNA and the Somalis, the reports are 315 killed, 812 wounded, 24 captured. Three killed, and one was wounded during extraction, the one that was wounded during extraction, I suspect, was the deputy to ID that had been captured along with other committee members when they made the initial, the initial raid and snatch mission. So let's step back to August very quickly. On 8 August 1993, SNA militia detonated a remote-controlled bomb against a U.S. Army vehicle, killing four MPs. On 19 August, second bomb attack injured four more U.S. soldiers. And then 22 August... A third attack, injuring six U.S. soldiers. So President Clinton approves Operation Gothic Serpent, which would deploy a 441-man special task force. And this task force name was Task Force Ranger. Its brief and portfolio was to hunt down and capture ID'd the leader of the SNA. Don't mean to be a spoiler, but I'm going to be. Nonetheless, uh, they failed to capture IDEED on the 3rd, 4th, and 6th of October, and IDEED was at large, and IDEED died much later on. IDEED, over time, would become president of parts of Somalia after this incident in 1993. So on 22 August, advanced forces were deployed to Somalia, followed shortly afterward by the main force on 25 August. The task force was handled as a strategic asset. It was led by Major General William Garrison, who was portrayed in Black Hawk Down the movie. He was the head of the Joint Special Operations Command at the time, which is the slice in SOCOM that takes care of all the Tier 1 activities to include Delta 24th STS, uh, SEAL Team 6, and other support activities to include other three-letter agencies that are involved in this. And I repeat, it was not under UN command or command of the U.S. General Thomas M. Montgomery. Now, while uh, mention is made of, of uh, these forces, General David's slice of 10th Mountain Division personnel who were there, who were manning the company QRF, they were also active in this. And I don't think that, for instance, Bowden paid enough attention to what happened with that particular organization. David retired as a general, but he was an army lieutenant colonel at the time when it came to uh, what happened here. They were the soldiers of 2nd Battalion, 14th Infantry Regiment of the 10th Mountain Division. And Colonel William David at the time, he'd arrived in country July 29th, 1993, as part of the UN's commitment to Somalia. So remember, this is a uh, battalion minus slice from a regular infantry division that arrives to support and provide cordon support to the Special Operations Forces that will participate in October 3rd and 4th. So on September 12th, during a combat patrol to attack and seize two compounds thought to be weapons storage facilities, they were ambushed, and they had a fight for their lives, only with the help of Pakistani tanks and Cobra gunships from 10th Division's Aviation Arm, Task Force 225, were they able to extricate. So 
Over 100 Somalis were killed in that engagement. On September 25th, a Task Force 225 Blackhawk helicopter was shot down by rocket-propelled grenades, resulting in one of the fiercest fights for 214. I illustrate this to bring into the fore that the shoot-down of those two MH60s during October 3rd and 4th weren't the first time that a Blackhawk or a helicopter was lost on the ground at the time. I did some digging into Lieutenant Colonel William David, 10th Mountain, and he had an extraordinary way in which he trained up in the workup to this deployment to Somalia, his small light infantry organization that was brought there. And I will probably talk about that more fully in a future episode because it deserves that kind of attention. Just want to make sure that in the description here that even though the special operations forces are hailed as the be-all and end-all, and one would think the only members, that is not correct. There were other members there from that battalion minus of uh, 10th. As most interested listeners know who have any background on this whatsoever, two Blackhawks are lost. As a result of those two Blackhawks being lost, they are downed aircraft, at which you find that some of the pilots died, some did not, for instance... Uh, Warrant Officer Durand wrote a terrific book after the event on his eventual rescue. I think it took him uh, 72 hours to get him finally extracted from IDEED's SNA, and I think it happened in a trade. But nonetheless, he comes back, severe injuries, and of course, imagine if one were to drop a bird, and what happened initially is there was a tremendous amount of not only Kalashnikov fire, but RPGs were everywhere. There's a notion that I think Lee Neville puts the lie to and does a really good job describing why that's the case, where some folks were saying, well, the Somalis had messed around with the RPGs to make sure that they would explode earlier, they would explode near contact with these helicopters. That wouldn't necessarily be the case because these helicopters were at such a low altitude that with the RPGs, which would usually arm at a distance of... 900 meters that they were exploding, and then they just so happened to get not only lucky strikes on aircraft, but lucky and very consequential strikes on Humvees, both up-armored and not armored, and some of that armor was expeditious at the time, like piling sandbags and such. Five-ton trucks were targeted, and this whole entourage of Task Force Ranger, which had originally joined with Delta where they had a combined vertical envelopment by helicopter on the building where they supposed the SNA leadership cadres were meeting. Vertical envelopment, of course, would mean that Delta at the time would find that moving on a multi-story building was much easier and more combat effective if one approached from the roof instead of going up, up a stairwell. A stairwell solution set, even for the best infantrymen, and of course some of the best shooters in the world, happened to be in Delta at the time. Uh, a, a stairwell, especially one that has 90 and 180 degree turns going up, can be, I would never say easily defended, but could be defended competently by several soldiers up there that have automatic weapons and bags of grenades. So even the best of the best would have difficulty with that. Thus, the solution was either to fast rope or air land via helicopter on the roof of these buildings 
and then start to service targets on the way down, which made it, made it easier, leveraging the capabilities of what I just described, where a small cadre of fairly competent soldiers could hold a stairway or roar down a stairway complex. And of course, with Delta, they would train with this in splendid rehearsals, very expensive rehearsals, to make sure that they can make that happen. Well, of course, the snatch doesn't succeed because the intelligence turned out to be wrong and Garrison's orders turned out to be wrong and his assignations and assumptions about how vibrant and numerous the combatants would be that would surround the buildings and such. Two of the helicopters, as I described, go down. As a result of those helicopters going down, ground-borne forces, a composite of both Delta and Ranger, start to proceed on azimuths to the first downed aircraft. Then there's a second downed aircraft, both by RPGs and I suspect a combination of Kalashnikov fire. Go down, they have to secure those sites, not only to rescue, because of course, one of the Rangers' notions is that we leave no man behind, whether dead or alive. And of course, you wouldn't want to leave a man behind in Somalia Mogadishu because they had showed a penchant for mutilation and dishonoring of corpses that fell into their hands. Now, there was uh, some intelligence mishaps that are described in detail in Neville's book, where he talks about, for instance, at one point, they have both rotary wing command birds, C2 birds, that are aloft, including a P3, which is providing moving target indicators and providing a map and giving steering directions for convoys that are traveling through there. But one thing that the convoys discovered is not only were they being azimuthed to the wrong bird on occasion when both birds were down and they were trying to conduct the combat search and rescue operations, but every intersection that they encountered in 360 degrees to include vertical stories, one, two, three, four-story buildings were all just teeming with Kalashnikov fire and RPG fire. I don't think Neville hinted at the number of RPGs that was present there, but it just seemed to be a tremendous number of RPGs. The RPG is, in this case, RPG-7s. These are about 38 inches in length, weigh about 14 and a half pounds unloaded, 19 pounds loaded with an 85-millimeter caliber round. That's the actual rocket. These aren't actually grenades, so this... Um, j just think of the... Even though it's characterized as a grenade, it's actually a rocket. Rate of fire of 4 to 6 rounds per minute at an army range of 5 meters. Sighting range of 500 meters and a maximum range, effective range, at which it detonates of approximately 900 meters. The initial velocity of the rocket is 117 meters per second and that increases up to 294 meters per second when the rocket assist engages. And at full speed, it can penetrate up to 13 inches of armor at zero degrees. We've seen this throughout the third world. It's everywhere. I recommend if you get the opportunity, there are a number of very informative YouTube videos on how an RPG-7 works. Recommend you look at it. When you, when you see it, uh, the rocket itself is 36, uh, 37 inches long. Weighs almost five pounds. Heat rounds are olive drab. Practice rounds are black. And they use a point impact fuse with a base detonator. It's rather primitive, but it's extraordinarily effective. And from an engineering standpoint, 
the greatly increased penetration of an explosive into a surface, as of metal or concrete, that's caused by shaping a conical or hemispherical hollow in the forward end of an explosive cartridge is part of why this particular firearm, this particular rocket launcher, is so effective. Heroism is a result of accidents and, and things going awry. And as a result of that, we have many, many great examples of everyday hero, heroism, extraordinary heroism. Everybody knows the selfless contribution of master sergeants from Delta, Shugart, and Gordon, who volunteered and insisted that once Duran's MH60 was down, that they go down to the site to defend the site with their sniper rifles, pistols, and everything. Both Shugart and Gordon died as a result of defending Durand. But these are just a few examples of the many examples of extraordinary heroism on the part of the Rangers, Delta, and later on the 10th Mountain Quick, Quick Reaction Force Company that I was describing earlier. And of course, I, I, I can't help but send out Hassan is in regards to the Malaysian forces and the Pakistani forces that helped to extract them. Because as a result of, and of course it's very easy for us to Monday morning quarterback, and Neville talks about this in the book, should we have had AC-130 gunships there for orbiting fire support? Maybe one can make the case, especially as a result of seeing what happened on the 3rd or 4th of October. But before the 3rd or 4th of October, the absence of the AC-130 gunships and the absence of armored support, it had been bandied about in the original packages. But one always has to, when sending packages overseas to conduct these kind of operations, you can't send everything and you have to make compromises. The compromises made in this case were that both civilian leadership in the DOD and Secretary of Defense Aspen, Lee Aspen at the time vetoed the ability of them to bring either armored forces or AC-130 gunships. After October, of course, for the limited period of time that U.S. and Allied forces remained in Somalia, AC-130 gunships were brought in, and they were brought in later on missions that would occur after 2000. Very effective. Those not familiar with the AC-130 gunship, it has a 75-millimeter howitzer. It has 20-millimeter Olercons, I think, if I, if I recall correctly, and a number of all other direct-fire weapons in which it can orbit a target, as was demonstrated in the Panama debacle in 1989, and devastate buildings without touching buildings that are around it. Nonetheless, these weren't there. What I find really handy in this book, and Neville does a great job uh, reviewing the primary and secondary source documentation available to him that apparently wasn't available to Bowden at the time when he first penned Black Hawk Down. This is a great addendum to that, is he does these appendices in which he talks about the TTP, as I described earlier, and the weapons that were employed. The Just for weapons, for instance, when it comes to looking at the pistols, rifles, sniper rifles and the engagement mechanisms by the helicopters and the forces that were employed at the time using these small arms, many great advances were precipitated by the very tragedies that occurred on October 3rd and 4th and were taken advantage of. For instance, back then there were primitive red dots on rifles and primitive, well, there weren't any red dots on pistols. And the use of pistols, for instance, as a, as a very... Um, 
quick snapshot, Rangers after this time would be issued pistols because what they discovered is whether professional military men poo-poo the use of pistols in combat and say the pistol is what you fight your way to your rifle with, agreed. But in this context, when one is in a vehicular convoy and you may not have the room to employ a rifle within the VIC itself, then the employment of pistols for defense certainly comes to bear much fruit as far as defending your assailed convoy on its way back to your base. The tragedy in all of this is doing it in the first place. As most of you know, I'm a severe skeptic of internationalism, a severe skeptic of getting involved in things that really aren't our business, and a severe skeptic of getting involved in these family disputes, which is what this is at the larger level in Somalia. And of course, many of the second and third order effects of the UN getting involved in the first place caused tremendous problems, which led to this tragic day under Operation Gothic Serpent. So do I recommend the book? I absolutely recommend the book. It's, it's, a, great, it's a rather short tome, by my estimation. Uh, if you're interested in finding out the expanding a rippling story that Mark Bowden tried to pen in 1999 with the publication of Black Hawk Down, uh, Bowden, I think, did a grand job with his book at the time. But, of course, Neville and Eversman were able to find a lot of, uh, as I mentioned, primary source and secondary source and interview documentation that had not been available to him at the time to flesh out what I like to call that single most accurate picture of what happened during those two days, the 3rd and 4th of October after 1993. Now, what did this lead to? Of course, it led to the departure of Allied forces, the U.S. and the West, from Somalia, and President Clinton being the politician that he was expressed surprise that the Battle of Mogadishu Gothic Servant had even occurred and later claimed that he decided on a diplomatic solution before the incident itself occurred. And uh, Bill Clinton surprised a Blackhawk downraid ABC News 21 April 2023 that had been claimed in 18 April 2014. So, of course, this is how politicians behave. Despite his apparent reservations, there had been no direct orders previously given to Task Force Ranger to halt operations against the SNA. Now, of course, after this, the SNA viewed the Battle of Mogadishu, the Day of the Rangers, as they call it in their Somali Argo, as a victory against the U.S. and UNISOM too. And an interesting wrinkle, Osama bin Laden claims, who was living in Sudan at the time, a neighbor sort of, cited this operation in particular, the U.S. withdrawal, as an example of American weakness and vulnerability to attack. That was an interview with Osama bin Laden on Frontline PBS from May 1998. There are other books available, other articles that you may find useful. Um, there's Kenneth Allard's 1995 Somalia Operations Lessons Learned from the DTIC, the Defense Technical Information Center, uh, My Clan Against the World, U.S. and Coalition Forces in Somalia, 92 to 94, by Versailles, Washington, and Robert Bauman. Uh, 
there was uh, a, an Osprey published this uh, this book, by the way, and, and bully for them. I, I love Osprey's books. Those of you with an interest in military history probably see the, the Osprey marquee as illustrative of those great 64-page books that they put out that cover lots of areas of military history. If you dig around throughout the joint publications and even the discrete Air Force Army publications, you'll find a variety of other uh, uh, PDFs and writings on this. I think that there was a, uh, a chapter in a history of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, Chapter 9 on Somalia and Operation Gothic Serpent by Roland Dolan. Uh, the CIA in Somalia, if you're interested, after action report from February 2000. That's Vernon Loeb. And there's a number of others. Just see what you can do to dig around. I had uh, mentioned earlier Sebastian Kampf, Saving Soldiers and Civilians, Casualty Aversion versus Civilian Protection and Asymmetric Conflicts. Highly recommend that. So do I recommend this book? Uh, unequivocally. I, I think it's a terrific investigation. And it's sort of riffs with the things that I mentioned last episode about how historiography evolves. I'd mentioned last episode about my youthful indiscretion reading Morris's book on Isundalwana and the savaging of the British armed forces by indigenous forces in 1879, thinking, wow, this is the be-all end-all, this is it. And then discovering that Lieutenant Colonel Michael Snook wrote his book, uh, how Can Men Die Better about that very incident and showed through much better historiography and the eyes of a soldier how those misapprehensions, and I would call historical malpractice by washing of the spears, that book from 65, were so wrong. Again, I don't think there's a lot of correctives in this. There's a lot of expansion in Neville's book. So I can recommend it. And I uh, hope that you can find others. And as always, I really appreciate feedback from my audience and my listeners and those of you who enjoy listening to this podcast. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by writing me at cgpodcast.pm.me. That is cgpodcast.pm.me. So with that, this is Bill, out. <laughs>